Good evening. Uh, welcome to uh, Planning Commission. Uh, today's Tuesday, March 26th. I'm Bill Wolpert and I'll be the chair tonight. Um, can we start off with roll call? Abercrombie? Here. Elias? Here. Harris? Johnson? Here. Miller? Here. Pierre? And Wolpert? Here. Um, approval of the minutes from our March 12th meeting. Are there any comments or discussion on those? Yes. Commissioner Elias? Um, on the uh, back, the last page of our commission min minutes, item six uh, identifies consider adding intersection of San Antonio to traffic study. That was part of the discussion we had on that and that included in that discussion was the intersections of San Antonio and I Street and San Antonio and D Street extension. So I'd like that in there because that's how it was discussed. And then the ex other item was item 10 on that in that same uh, list was expanded discussion of stormwater detention including where and how but it, it didn't give much clarification on what what's being referred to there and it has to do with the uh, the the creek, I guess it was Kelly Creek that was in the discussion, and that that creek, how it goes through private properties uh, downstream of uh, the Victoria uh, subdivision, and so what's the impact on the private properties, and and this being a, well, I think it's been referred to as a private creek, but anyway, that was part of the discussion. I think that needs to be clarified a little bit further in the minutes themselves, and those are the only two items that I would like um, a little more explanation in, uh, in the uh, approval of these minutes. And with that, I'll make a motion to approve the minutes. Second. Okay. All right. Minutes from March 12th for approved with those corrections. Chair. Take a vote. Vote. Okay. Let's <laughs> vote on that. Aye. 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 Opposed? All right. Approved is corrected. Um, <coughs> public comment. Anybody wishing to speak this evening on uh, a topic that is not on tonight's agenda? Uh, now would be your time. If you'd like to do so, there are speaker cards in the back. Uh, just bring them up front and give them to Jennifer. Or if you uh, have not filled out a speaker card for um, speaking on the agenda later this evening, um, you also need to have a speaker card. So, nobody wants to speak right now? Public comments closed then. Uh, correspondence. Um, any correspondence? The, the only correspondence is you should have received two late mail items um, on the item that's on the agenda, but n nothing additional has come in since those two late mails went out to the commission. Okay. Did we get a copy of that uh, late that late, late document? Yeah, I know, but what, did, do we have printouts here? I'll pass my copies down for you. Planning manager's report. 
I just have a, a couple updates to um, a couple items that are coming up for hearing or activity on um, the riverfront FEIA, which I believe the commission got a courtesy copy of that is scheduled to go before um, the council on May 6th. And that was um, <coughs> the 30 day, there was some modifications that needed to be made in terms of the anticipated development impact fees. Those have now been made and that's being recirculated for the required 30 day. Um, so that's scheduled for May 6th. The David on draft EIR will be going to council on April 15th. And then just to let you know that um, Deer Creek Village uh, has submitted improvement plans both on site and off site that the city has reviewed um, and they have those corrections. So that project is, is starting to um, make some movement towards construction. And everyone can see the, the ongoing construction at East Washington Place that's happening pretty rapidly. Yeah. Most of those um, building permits are either in review or have been issued out there. Okay. That's all I have. Yes. Hi. Um, I was wondering, I heard that the public art um, plan was presented to parks and I wanted to see when that was going to come to us or if it wasn't. So It is coming to you guys. It will probably be the second meeting in April that it would be the um, public art committee's master plan and um, zoning text amendments to the art chapter of the IZO. Mm -hmm. Any other questions? Uh, Commissioner Liaison reports. Who wants to start? All right. Um, with respect to um, what's going on in the council, uh, our last meeting we extended the city manager's contract, so that was sort of the big, the big item at the at the last meeting. Um, we're starting to get some activity for some of our spring events. Uh, Butter Next is coming up at the end of April. Um, I went to a very nice fundraiser. There were a lot of people there last night at Lagunitas for Butter and Eggs. Um, they're selling buttons. They're $5, um, and they go to support our parade. So if you see somebody out selling buttons, uh, please go ahead and buy one. Thanks. Mr. Abercrombie? Um, we haven't had a PBAC meeting since the last meeting we had here, but I did want to point out if anybody hasn't noticed they probably have by now the mural going on the side of the Phoenix by Ricky Watts and so that's really fun to watch them um, I was gonna suggest the Keller Street parking garage we went up there and had a picnic and it was really fun to sit up there and watch it for a while and it was like a nice cultural experience you don't always get in Petaluma <laughs> I mean in that way that's the right. biggest mural in town so it's pretty fun and it's very colorful and you can see it from Petaluma Market too so if you just want to shop and look up it's right there but um, they're going to be having a party to celebrate the mural unveiling April 13th. Um, it's going to be at 402 Petaluma Boulevard from 7 to 10 p.m. 10 p.m. from on April 13th. So uh, go stop by. It's open to everybody, and I think it'll be a nice celebration. Thank you, Commissioner Elias. <laughs> what? Nothing, Commissioner. No, thank you, Commissioner Johnson. No. All right. Um, then we're on to new business for our public hearing. Um, we're going to be reviewing the uh, Petaluma Smart Station area plan and the uh, proposed changes to the uh, Smart Code 
and uh, mitigated negative declaration. Um, and Scott's going to give us an introduction on that. Good evening, Commissioners, Councilmember Miller. Um, I'm really excited to be here tonight and present this final draft of the stationary master plan. It's been a, a long process to, to get to where we are this evening and um, look forward to presenting it to you and also hearing your, your comments and feedback and, um, and we'll look forward to answering all those questions. So um, just to kind of set the context for the plan, the, uh, back in 2010, the City of Petaluma applied for and received funding from the Metropolitan Transportation Commission and the Association of Barrier Governments for planning efforts that seek to increase transit ridership by maximizing the potential for transit-oriented development around transit stations. Those agencies had actually set aside about $2.5 million up and down the smart rail corridor um, geared towards uh, helping communities to plan for passenger rail coming to town. So we took advantage of it. Um, it also provides an opportunity for Petaluma to look at how we as a city can take advantage of the fact that commuter rail is coming to town by ensuring that existing employment centers, commercial activities, residential neighborhoods, coupled with future neighborhoods and job generating uses can benefit from commuter rail. The plan looks at the potential for transit-oriented development around the two planned smart rail stations in Petaluma, the first being at Corona Road which you can see here um, at the intersection of Corona and North McDowell. The yellow line represents a half mile radius around that planned station site. Um, and so those were the area that we we're looking at for Corona. And I'd like to point out um, that SMART has deferred that site into a second phase of the project. And uh, as Dan will discuss later, that's kind of changed some of the emphasis of this plan as well, uh, given those uncertainties. The downtown station area um, is depicted here, again, by yellow half-mile radius around the station. You can see touches all the way out to the fairgrounds, um, as well as encompassing most of the downtown area. Um, the majority of our focuses have been on some of the catalyst sites within the specific plan area, mainly between downtown and the planned rail station. planning process began just over two years ago with the appointment of a 17-member Citizens Advisory Committee by the City Council. The committee was composed of a diverse group of interests representing both of those geographic areas. And also in addition, we formed at a staff level a technical advisory committee that included uh, city staff but also outside agency staff so that we could be getting input from various transit agencies, from um, the funding agencies, as well as all the city departments. The plan is a result of numerous meetings of the Citizens Advisory Committee and the Transit or, um, Technical Advisory Committee, as well as two community-wide workshops, as you can see up on the um, slide here. The first public workshop consisted of a three-day charrette that was held back in May 2011. It was a really fun uh, process and, and unique, um, not something that we've had an opportunity to do a lot of in this community, where we, uh, the planning team or the consultant team basically set up a um, working studio over at the community center for three days and we had a series of tabletop exercises there were one-on-one -on -one meetings with property owners and developers and various interest groups and individuals as well as informal and formal presentations that were held each evening during those three days 
The Citizen Advisory Committee uh, continued to meet throughout the planning process to address specific topics, to refine the design concepts and refine the content of the master plan and the smart code amendments as we work through those documents. In addition to the meetings, all the project deliverables were also distributed to members of the Citizens Advisory Committee and the Technical Advisory Committee for their comment and, and input throughout the process. In addition to providing a vision of the station area plans, the, the plan provides an analysis of market demand, housing, access, connectivity, and parking, infrastructure needs, as well as historic preservation. The master plan also includes a framework for public spaces, building frontage types, as well as phasing, recognizing the uncertainty in the market uh, for transit-oriented development at this point in time. The amendments to the smart code included as part of this project are designed to facilitate implementation of this plan and its vision and to correct several of the outdated sections of the current smart code that was adopted with the Central Petaluma Specific Plan. And if you'll recall, the smart code is essentially the zoning ordinance for the Central Petaluma Specific Plan for all the parcels within that boundary. The three primary documents that are here for you to review this evening include the station area master plan itself, Appendix A, which is the smart code amendments. And the way that's been put together is it's essentially the entire existing smart code with all the proposed changes in there. They're marked in red or they're labeled as, as new to kind of help show what those changes are. What would happen is um, with the recommendation to City Council and then City Council adoption, we would basically tear that old smart code out of the CPSP and insert the, the new one and it would become the zoning ordinance for that area and bring that document uh, up to date, which is woefully needed. So. Um, the other piece is, of course, the initial study in the draft mitigated negative declaration, which is also available for uh, public comment as part of this hearing. In addition to the staff report, your packet includes an addendum that reflects changes and edits to the final draft documents that were released in January 2013 that were based on additional input received from the last Citizens Advisory Committee meeting in February as well as some further staff input, um, all of which has been summarized in your staff report this evening. Also included for your consideration and recommendation to the City Council are some property owner requests for additional modifications to the plan. Uh, I know that several of them are here this evening and you'll hear from them during the public comment portion. Staff is recommending that the Planning Commission adopt a resolution recommending that the City Council approve a mitigated negative declaration for the Petaluma Smart Rail Station Area's TOD Master Plan recommend approval of the TOD master plan itself, and recommend adoption of the smart code amendments. If it's all right with the Planning Commission, what I'd like to do now is turn this presentation over to Dan Perolik. He's a principal with Opticos Design, and they were the lead consultant throughout this process. Um, and in my opinion, and I think several others, they've done a really outstanding job. So um, we look forward to answering your questions after his presentation and, and working through the, the documents that you're direction. Thank you, Scott. <clears throat> well, good evening. Good evening, Planning Commission, and good evening, Council Member Miller. As uh, Scott said, uh, my name is Dan Parolik. I'm the principal of Opticos Design, and we are the lead, have been the lead consultant on the stationary, station area master planning. And 
Uh, I was a little bit shocked to realize when Scott said that the first workshop was actually two, almost two years ago. Um, so it's, it's really great to be here in front of you at this really important milestone, two plus years into this project. Um, after some really hard work from the bill and the advisory uh, committee, uh, the technical advisory committee and the staff and our team, um, we're really excited about this project. I think um, one thing that I didn't realize would happen is there's actually a lot of people outside this community talking about this plan. Uh, I had lunch with Bob Brown, who's the planning director for Novato, uh, a couple weeks ago, and he brought up the, the Petaluma Smart Stationary Plan and the, the Smart Code as a really great model for both him as a sort of local community to kind of look at and emulate. So we're glad that there's some excitement both locally as well as kind of out a broader excitement about the plan because I know we're, we're very excited about it. Um, I'm going to do a, a fairly brief presentation tonight and then Scott and I will uh, be available to answer your questions. I'm going to spend about just the first couple of minutes talking about the Corona Road Station and kind of some of our initial findings and then move very quickly uh, to the downtown uh, station area uh, vision and spend about 10 minutes on that. And then lastly, I'm going to spend about the last 10 minutes talking about some of the specifics about the smart code additions as well as refinements. And so um, I'm going to go through these slides fairly quickly, um, but I I'm uh, looking forward to answering questions. So starting with the Corona Road station area, and Scott showed this image earlier, but um, the, in the, the initiation of this process we actually were treating both the Corona Road and the downtown station as equals. Uh, but a, a couple of things happened. We, we went through all of the initial analysis uh, with our team in terms of uh, market studies, uh, transportation, connectivity, and realized very quickly that a couple of things. Number one, the Corona Road station, the exercise was primarily about improving connectivity to the future station from existing uses. Um, and so uh, now we worked with Nelson Nygaard very closely, who's our transportation consultant, to think about those larger regional connections, both for pedestrians, <coughs> bicyclists, as well as automobiles to this station, which would be a park and ride station. Um, the, the second thing we realized very quickly, and I don't think it takes a lot to, to realize that, is there's not a lot of opportunity sites within the immediate vicinity of the Corona Road station. And so um, that, uh, in addition to the fact that uh, partway into this process, the SMART uh, folks actually deferred this station until a, a phase two of construction. So it became very easy, uh, easy for us to, to uh, determine that it makes more sense for us to focus our time and energy on the, the opportunities that exist within the downtown station area. So in terms of the downtown station area vision, um, it was actually our economist who came up with this idea in the first workshop of thinking about the connection from your downtown to the, the, the smart station as a series of theatrical events. And you know, it's, we were drawing things on paper to kind of visualize those concepts, but it was our economist who actually came up with that idea and that sort of theme actually worked its way and still uh, is very integral to the vision for the downtown smart station uh, planning, the station area plan. And so what I wanted to do uh, very quickly is I wanted to actually walk you through that series of theatrical events very quickly to kind of uh, 
enable you to understand that procession that we're envisioning both in the vision plan and more importantly in the smart code and how the plan is actually implemented. And so this is actually a really great page that gives an overview of those series of theatrical events from uh, the bridge at the end of Western, so going on to the Golden Eagle shopping site. But let me walk through these. So. Um, we were also very excited that the team was able to do a lot of illustrative drawings, three-dimensional drawings, because we feel that as much as we draw two-dimensionally on a map, the, 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 those, of, uh, the, those people in the community, the stakeholders, don't necessarily understand it as clearly until we go three-dimensional like this and do the, these illustrative drawings. So this is a really great drawing, just a, an overview, really showing how the long-term vision is really to engage the waterfront with a vibrant urban uh, a new neighborhood really and also visually connect back from the river to the station area very clearly and um, specifically within the new plan so kind of as you make your way over the pedestrian bridge what we're proposing here in, in the area just to the south of uh, where the Golden Eagle Shopping Center currently exists. And it's the location right where the brewery kind of spills out and has that outdoor seating. I mean, in some ways, that was the inspiration for this because we feel that that space actually functions fairly well, except for the fact that there's a, a drive, kind of an alley, that cuts you, you as the, the person sitting at the restaurant from the waterfront. So you make your way across the bridge to this new waterfront plaza. And this is just an illustration of the type of the sort of the character and the scale of that public plaza that we're envisioning to engage and activate the waterfront in that location. So then as you work your way around the bend, the basin, um, there's this continuous sequence of public spaces and walkways that take you to um, this new town square. Um, we're proposing uh, sort of multiple opportunities for the, the public spaces to actually work the way down and engage the waterfront, as well as the buildings to orient themselves to the waterfront and activate uh, it as well. So continue to work our way around the basin. Um, one of the great opportunities that came up as we were doing several alternative studies for this site was we feel that there's actually enough space uh, kind of right at the elbow of the basin to actually integrate a small outdoor amphitheater space. And this was really an idea that came to us through several of the participants um, in, I think it was actually the second workshop, but it, but it kept coming up over and over. And we were thrilled to be able to integrate uh, this type of outdoor um, performance venue into the plan and feel it could become a real icon and sort of activity generator for this uh, station area district. So then as you work your way around onto Weller Street, um, you know, a really nice large sidewalk promenade as you're kind of seeing the, the river in on the right there, um, sort of drawing you, you, know, you, can, you can just imagine this series of events that kind of draw you along um, th this, uh, this procession along the waterfront. And then you come to what is being called the new Transverse Street, and I did not pick the name of that. Oh, I won't take credit for that because I think it could have a much more eloquent name. But um, what's really great about this is you come around the corner, the views sort of up toward the station area, 
and sort of that visual connection becomes very evident up this new transverse street and what we're proposing as a some sort of a large clock tower or civic tower to kind of draw you visually from the waterfront to the station area and um, you know very um, active uh, streetscape and very um, uh, the buildings actually engage the, the 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 sidewalk and the public realm in a very active way and so working your way up the transverse street uh, you come to a point um, at the mid block here where copeland street now bisects or will bisect the new transverse street and you come to this uh proposed linear park that kind of opens up the 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 pedestrians experience uh, to the stationary and to the clock tower and we feel that this could be a real um, sort of uh, iconic public space um, for the new buildings on both sides uh, of this lin new linear park. So then just flipping around, kind of going up vertically above uh, the buildings and looking back down this linear parkway in the transverse street, we felt that this was a pretty powerful image to show both that visual and just the real physical connection from the station area, so the station's just kind of cut off just on the bottom here, uh, down to the new river. This is the, the River Inn building right here. So it's a really, really kind of important theme that kept coming up in terms of that strong vis visual and physical connection to, to the waterfront, and ultimately sort of leading back to downtown as well. Um, we were really excited that you know, we were thinking a lot about the buildings originally, and I think the, the advisory committee and all the different stakeholders that came to the table got us thinking more and more about the public spaces. And, th and so this diagram is something like we've never actually never done before, but it actually uh, reinforces the fact there's a series of really fantastic and unique public spaces and public venues kind of working your way around the waterfront and up to uh, the, the, the smart station. The other thing we thought very carefully about is just based on the current economics is that it's not likely that this either what any of these parcels or opportunities are going to develop all at once so we worked with our economists to think about an incremental TOD implementation strategy so in this early phase you see it becomes really important to define the edges along that pedestrian experience but you're in the short and midterm, even leaving on sort of surface parking at the back sides of the building so that a parking structure doesn't need to be built in the short term, just making a lot more economically feasible. But at the same time, the blocks have been, desi been designed such that they can accommodate a very efficient parking structure at the back sides of these buildings in the long term. So we thought very carefully about that incremental strategy um, if that becomes a necessity based on just the economics of the implementation. And um, we thought a lot about ground floor uses. And really, um, one of the things we talked a lot about is frontages. It's that transition from the building into the public realm, and I'm going to talk about it more in the smart code. But it's really avoiding this type of condition where, uh, where some of the newer buildings have what feels very much like a back orienting onto the riverfront. And so we want to make sure that they turn fronts onto the waterfront as well as having fronts onto the street side as well. So we thought very carefully about appropriate interfaces or frontages between the buildings and the sidewalks. Um, just a lot of uh, illustrative examples. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about building types, but we talked very frequently about building types 
being the um, ingredients for a really great neighborhood or a downtown district. So we actually integrated building types as a specific component within the smart code, and I'm gonna talk a little bit about that uh, in just a little bit more. So uh, I think we all know that a good vision plan is only as good as the tool to implement it. Um, that's why we were very excited to have a full multidisciplinary team that include you know, people looking at economics, transportation, infrastructure, affordable housing, historic preservation. And so uh, the smart code and the amendments to the smart code become the tool for implementing these big picture visions and sort of really enabling it to build out in a predictable way. Um, I'm just gonna kind of fairly quickly go through these changes just to give you a graphic overview. I think, so um, Scott mentioned it briefly, but uh, the, the Petaluma smart code is, is very famous in the sort of form-based code geek circles that Petaluma smart code was the first adopted smart code in the entire country. So it's, it, it, was per, it was very exciting for us to be working on uh, the smart code and sort of the combination of the smart code template, which we, you know, it's now up to version nine, yours was version one, so there were a lot of changes that we brought through. But we also combined that with our typical form-based code template, which um, a lot of people nationally look to as kind of the real model for usability and graphic clarity. So I think you really have a kind of a, a high performance uh, zoning code here and, and we're pretty excited about it. And I'm, I'm hoping those that are administering it will be equally excited because I know they were having some, some issues with the old one. So we added just some basic things, overview of a description of the transect zones, just really basic, but hey, let's start by setting a really clear foundation of what the intent is for each one of these transect zones. Um, we actually, um, this is the uh, the regulating plan, which is the zoning map for the smart code. And we, you know, we didn't, we weren't working outside of this half mile pedestrian shed, but we really zoomed in on the area immediately around the station area and thought very carefully about how we needed to regulate it to implement um, a lot the long-term predictability of the vision that we worked with you all to create couple of things about the, the, the regulating plan is that um, uh, there are, we actually in several areas, areas primarily up in this area, we actually um, sort of reduced the amount of T6 zone that was mapped, which is the most intense and kind of goes up to, to the four to six stories because we felt economically that it just wasn't realistic to think that much T6 at the highest intensity would be viable. And what we did instead is we focused the, the sort of uh, brownish gray color here is the T6 in areas that where it becomes really important to uh, uh, focus the more intense development to create a gateway f you know, into Petaluma from the station area along the corridors that can be you know, nicely defined by larger buildings. And so, uh, that was one of the major changes in the regulating plan. We also created what we call open zones. So the, the areas with the, the, the hatch here is a, the same T6 form is required, but the open means that there's a wider variety of ground floor uses that are allowed. So that was really based on the market realities of not being able to program all of these ground floors with 
retail space. Like it's just not not realistic to think that that could happen. So this allows that to evolve over the long term. Uh, this is, uh, we just thought very carefully about all of the development standards and they're summarized on this table. Um, just a couple of usability things is just making sure that we're tying back like the thoroughfares, the civic spaces. They're not only just regulated in this table, but they're also tied back to a, a, a section within the smart code now that gives supplemental standards uh, for those particular areas. I'm going to summarize those uh, here very briefly. Um, one of the other things we did is, you know, we just completely got rid of density um, as a regulation per zone, and that's really the, the, the kind of the true form-based way to approach a project like this, is you say, you very carefully define the form that you want, the desired form, you regulate to make sure the form is predictable, and then you let the density happen within that form and you're less regulatory about that density. So um, I think that's a really uh, good milestone because we felt the densities were somewhat prohibit prohibitive in some of these transect zones. Um, so building function standards, this is really uh, the smart code terminology for use tables. Um, uh, but we thought, uh, I don't know, you know, this is kind of burning the, the midnight oil in the lamps of thinking very carefully about all of the uses within the different transect zones very carefully and what mix of uses we wanted to allow in each of the zones. And um, one of the things we did that I think will be really beneficial is we actually added a minor use permit um, to the approval process so that the staff can actually, uh, uh, they can actually uh, approve uh, uh, minor uh, deviations with the minor use permit, um, which I think is a really great step in terms of uh, predictability in the, the entitlement process. The other thing we did within the use table, which was a really big one, is we actually took uh, the majority of the industrial uses that were being allowed in the T6 zone, and since we reduced the size of the T6 zone and only applied it to really important and prominent areas, we said that those areas, it doesn't make sense to actually allow the industrial zones in, but they're allowed in all the other zones. So we actually pulled those industrial uses out of the sort of those T6 zones facing the station and facing Washington Street. Um, <coughs> sort of also in that transition uh, of thinking about kind of reducing the amount of, of T6 and making more of it the T5 zone, um, we actually are um, allowing the height exception in the T, the, sorry, let me take a step back. The T6 allows six stories by right now. So there's a benefit to property owners in that way. The T5 then uh, is uh, permitted at four stories, but we change it such that uh, through the planning commission's approval, it can actually go up to six stories if the build building is exceptional or the project is exceptional and, and the, the planning commission feels that it's merited to give those additional two stories. So we think that's, a really great way to, to get a high quality project and sort of make uh, get a project uh, coming out of the ground in the short to midterm. Uh, we added private frontage types. These are all um, new illustrations and new text, kind of bringing that up to up to uh, the latest uh, standards of the smart code. Um, we also added photographs, and for each of the specific frontage types, and this is dooryard and shop front, two different frontage types, we actually added some supplementary standards to make sure, and this is from our 
Opticos template to supplement the more general standards for frontage in the smart code because we feel this is this is a really important for the long-term build-out um, of a plan like this. Let's see. This is really hard to see, but there are actually if you look at the map. This is actually a really important map. It's one of the regulating plans. It ties the frontage types to where they are allowed, and so. Um, each one of the colors represents a, a, a grouping of frontage types and then each block has a color that sort of tells you what frontage types are allowed where and that's hard to explain without those colors actually showing up here but be happy to answer questions about that um, we, we supplemented the civic space standards just because the the civic and public spaces were such a strong focus of this plan uh, we felt it was necessary to really flush these standards out especially as they applied to the unique types of spaces that we were creating along the waterfront and tying back up to the station. And um, this is the open space and civic space regulating plan. And this is just begins to summarize that sequence of spaces and that experience, the experience of the, the theatrical events, and actually sets the standards for minimum sizes for those spaces and um, also requires you know specific connections down to the waterfront so we got very specific in the way that the civic space is regulated um, within the civic space regulating plan um, because live work has be been such an issue here from an administration standpoint we actually sort of split live work and work live into two different categories and this is really inspired by a colleague of ours who wrote a book on live work and, and live work means that the primary function in a space is living and the workspace is secondary and work live is just the opposite where it might be an artist using the space primarily for, for working and there's a smaller percentage of the space set aside for living and so we actually differentiated those and regulated them uh, in slightly different ways. Um, we also integrated uh, supplemental standards on building types I'm just going to show you a couple exam examples of townhouses, uh, main street buildings. We just uh, feel that it's important to get that level in the conversation of go beyond the general form standards in the transect zones and then plug in allowed building types. So what you see here, so you have the main street building type and it actually tells you in black here which of the transect zones that that particular building type is allowed in. So it's all tied back to uh, the transect zones. Uh, we thought very carefully about signage as well. I think it's a, a really important part of a vibrant uh, urban environment. Um, worked with Nelson Nygaard and the, the city staff uh, to kind of arm wrestle over uh, thoroughfare standards, both in terms of how existing streets like uh, Washington and D and even Weller and Copeland will transform over time, but also how the, uh, the new streets will be detailed and implemented. So uh, just a couple examples of very specific thoroughfare standards really down to the foot for East Washington and the new transverse street and we got to that level of detail uh, for both the existing streets around the perimeter and through the side as well as the new streets like the transverse street and these streets um, sort of tying around the basin. And so 
this is a really important part of that public space framework is the design of the streets and so we wanted to make sure that those weren't left up left open for interpretation that they're actually fairly specific and can be implemented um, in a very predictable way for property owners and developers as well uh, parking uh, was as always uh, just a topic of conversation uh, I don't know if you remember but your uh, the parking uh, requirements actually sunsetted five years after the original specific plan was adopted so uh, based on the way the document was worded there was actually you could actually come in and develop a project and actually provide no off-street parking which is not a bad thing I'm actually very much for that in an urban context like this but it was a bit unrealistic because of how little had happened in the area after the theater district got built and so we worked with Nelson Igar to think very carefully about parking and the way that it's uh, sunsetting now is at the point where the city can actually put a, a parking management plan in place to actually keep parking availability at 15 percent then that triggers the the no off-street parking requirement so it's a completely different and very new and sort of up-to-date way to think about a parking management strategy which we're, we're pretty excited about um, the last thing I just want to mention it's and this is kind of really in the thick thick of the the weeds of we thought very carefully about code administration because we know that this was a, a problem historically that was the the smart code was really hard to administer and so uh, we did a couple of things there's a section here where we pulled um, what are called warrants warrants and variances this is a concept that's in the newer smart code template and so we pulled this through where it's an opportunity for property owners to ask for deviations from the regulations in the existing code and the warrant is uh, the staff is actually allowed to make the decision on the warrant and then the um, variance uh, actually goes through its own separate uh, public review process and then the other really great thing as I mentioned earlier that was inherent in the use tables is we actually added this minor use permit and uh, once again the minor use permit is uh, is is um, given by staff a staff level review so it's actually um, just as long as the staff is knowledgeable about the project the intent and the objectives it's a really good way if there's just one or two small things that are preventing a developer from coming in with a great project the staff is is able to um, administer that so in in closing um, I, I mean we're really excited about this and I'm hoping that you are too because I think a lot of the advisory committees work as well as the other stakeholders that participated made this plan uh, a really great plan and and I guess we're really excited about the opportunity here to create a walk a vibrant walkable urban place that activates the riverfront and the basin that creates really a a very unique network of public spaces along the river from the downtown to the transit station and does it in a way that really reinforces the unique character that is Petaluma because it, it is really like kind of unlike any other place um, in this region so um, we are going to open it up for uh, questions Bill. Does everybody have their questions written down? Yep. Good. Hold that thought. Because <laughs> what I'd like to do uh, at this point actually is go to public comment. And then when we um, conclude that, I would like to come back and, and take these issues as three separate issues. I'd like to cover the uh, 
the smart station area plan first, anything you have relating to that, and then get into the smart code amendments, and then finish up with the uh, negative declaration. Okay? So um, I'm opening public comment for um, this topic. Um, you have three minutes to um, give us your views. Um, I have four uh, speaker cards here. If uh, anybody wishes to speak who hasn't given me a card, it's not too late to do that. Just uh, fill it out in the back and bring it over here to Jennifer. Uh, first person to speak is George Weiner, and uh, following that is uh, Dave Lipschitz. Is that right? All right. Sorry, Dave. Good evening. Uh, I'd like to compliment the people who created this plan on uh, putting an awful lot of work, uh, and I hope that we'll see a lot of this for our future. My name is George Weiner. I have owned the property at 133 Copeland Street here in Petaluma since 1979. Uh, about a, this is my wife, Judy. <laughs> <laughs> this is Vanna White. <laughs> anyway, okay. This property is <clears throat> four and a half acres and 75,000 square feet of industrial buildings. was built for and used by poultry producers of Central California while the poultry industry flourished. I moved my manufacturing business into 20,000 square feet and over the next four years eventually found tenants for the remaining spaces. We put money and effort into making the spaces rentable and are proud of the result. Flash forward to 2003 when the CPSP changed the zone from industrial to mixed-use residential. The change was implemented without any regard for the realities of our proximity to Dairyman's feed mill and the railroad. Now the property is about to be rezoned again to T5, which is also totally inappropriate for the same reasons it was wrong then. Our proximity to the Dairyman's feed mill and the railroad the letter, the letter included in your packet clearly describes the obstacles to developing this property as prescribed by the smart rail station plan. One other major obstacle is the city's neglect of Copeland Street. Over the past 34 years, I have begged for street repairs with no improvements. I realized that a developer would be mandated to build the street as a condition of the new use. The city has the power to handicap the property owner by zoning and infrastructure neglect. 133 Copeland Street is being handicapped by both the inappropriate zone designation which severely limits acceptable industrial categories and the condition of the street. The future plans for this area look great on paper, but fail to address the reality of our proximity to Dairyman's Feed Mill and the railroad. I am here tonight to ask you to reconsider this zone designation for my property and implement a parcel-specific policy as suggested in my letter to Scott. Uh, I don't know how much time I have left, but uh, uh, 10 years ago when this, when this was adopted, 
uh, I was told uh, the day of the adoption of the central specific plan that I'd better get to the council meeting because they're going to change my zone. That was my first, my first not knowledge of being removed from an industrial zone. Thank you for your for your consideration. Dave and then Paul Singh. Good evening. My name is Dave Lipkis. I live on Wilson Street near this project. You've seen the best case scenario. I'm going to give you some of the worst. I have four major concerns about this plan. First, all references to the North Petaluma Smart Station should be removed from this plan and backburnered. Not only has Smart continually refused to commit to a North Petaluma Station, but a few months ago it was reported in the paper that they turned down an opportunity to buy the property. Um, there's no hurry to approve this plan. Smart is playing games with us. The best strategy at this point is not to play at all until you know what game they're playing. Second, I didn't see it on the plan or not, but I don't know if there's a traffic light in spec for um, Copeland and East D Street. Traffic already backs up on Copeland on a regular basis. Please don't think about a roundabout there with the amount of big rig traffic that runs through it. Also, Weller Street onto East Street will probably have to be made no left turn. Third, your buildings shown on the plan are four, five, possibly six stories tall. It's too tall compared to adjacent buildings. Plus, I see no geological study to assure that the ground is stable enough to support buildings of that height. At a point, as a point of reference, I remember the soil study done from the nearby old silk mill site. They drilled a 35-foot deep core. They found a thin layer of topsoil, followed by three feet of adobe, 15 feet of water and adobe, and the rest down to 35-foot sand and water. <clears throat> they never hit base rock. Until you know different, you need to play it safe on these buildings. I do not, as such, I do not agree with the mitigated negative deck rather than a full EIR. EIR will bring out a lot of issues that you're going to find with this project that you're not going to with the negative deck. Pelham already has buildings that won't survive a major earthquake. We don't need more. Last, there needs to be at least 300 parking places minimum dedicated for smart riders. If you don't do that, here's what will likely happen. The first smart riders will fill up the parking spaces at the vis visitor's center and art gallery. When they're full, some will simply dive onto their destination and forget the train. Others will scour the nearby neighborhoods for any place to park. This will lead to the city having to enforce limited time parking in the visitor's lot as well as a few businesses in the area. Nearby streets will have to go to permit parking for residents only. Pretty soon, once the existing spaces by the depot fill, all remaining smart riders will simply drive onto their destinations. You did very well with your recent actions on the Davidon project. Your duty is to do what's best for the public, not for any developer, not for SMART. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank, thank you, Mr. Lucas. Mr. Singh? No, I said thank you. He said a lot of nice things. Good evening, everybody. Um, I'm the owner of uh, Texaco Gas Station on 421 Petaluma Boulevard South. Uh, I bought this property about seven years ago for, uh, to me, a huge amount of money, and I've always uh, upgraded everything, like put in new pumps and uh, several other things to make the station better for everybody. Um, now I find that um, I'm in the T5 
zone from not allowed, I would like to have a make it a conditional use permit so I can keep the gas station there. Um, I think it's very important. The smart plan looks very nice, but they've got the parking, but they haven't considered having a gas station, and I'm the only gas station in that area, and they're building a lot of homes uh, by the south end of Petaluma, by the freeway, and um, uh, within the last meeting, and now I've got a lot of people that come to my station and got a petition signed, and they're surprised uh, they would like to see and keep the gas station there. So therefore, I would like the committee to reconsider this from not allowed to a conditional use permit. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Singh. Brian Gannon. And this is the last speaker card I have. Good evening. I'm here to speak about uh, the gas station at 421 Petaluma Boulevard as well. Uh, the, plan, <clears throat> the plan really looks beautiful. I used to work in Petaluma 40 years ago, I know. Um, but it looks to me like the density is going to increase significantly. There's going to be a lot more people living here. And Mr. Singh does own the only gas station on Petaluma Boulevard South. And uh, the, the T5 zoning uh, specifically states, or its, its mandate is that the gas station will eventually disappear. And as I look at, as I, correct me if I'm wrong, I was going to ask you earlier, but T4, T5, and T6, all gas stations are not allowed. And that's going to increase. He's got thousands of customers that all live in Petaluma Boulevard South. They're all going to have to drive farther to get their gas. And once they get in their car, as I read the document, the idea is to keep people in downtown. Once they're in those vehicles, the, there's that leakage factor, and they're going to be tempted to drive to Katati or Costco or Walmart or wherever, and those dollars are going to leave downtown. And it made sense to at least have one gas station. He's got the only gas station in that whole T5 zone. And uh, we're asking that you reconsider the conditional use permit zone, uh, uh, changing not allowed to conditional use permit because the city still has complete control. If anything were proposed there that didn't meet any of the architectural criteria contained in the in the station plan, the city could simply reject it. And I understand that sort of undermines the whole idea of the, the smart plan, but we're only talking about one gas station here. We're not talking about uh, a lot of properties within that zone. So that's that was our question. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Gannon. Any other comments for um, this public comment period? All right, then public comment is closed. So now I'd like to go back and and um, ask some questions of the the plan itself of the master plan. So, Councilmember Miller, would you like to start? Um, Do you have any questions? <laughs> not, you know, I really. I don't, I mean, it's a lot to absorb, and, and I think that the folks who've worked on it have done a tremendous uh, job on it. Um, from a sort of practical perspective, um, I, when I was looking through all of it, I was thinking, this is lovely, now how do we pay for what we want to do? 
Um, so that kind of brought me crashing back down down to earth, unfortunately. Um, and and I'm also um, I you know I share the concerns about Smart and what's going on with Smart um, and the whole second station issue, which I think is is a tremendous mistake to not build that second station at the same time they're building the first and to bypass it. Um, I think that's ridiculous. But um, I um, I really don't have questions so much about the master plan as I do about the smart code um, amendments. So I think I'll, I'll just wait until we get to that. Okay. Yeah, we'll come back to that. Okay. All right. Commissioner Abercrombie. Hi. Um, I had a couple of questions. I'm not sure if this is the appropriate time, so maybe you can give me a direction. But if I know a couple of the properties that are within this have sold in the last two years, that this was developed, like the Pitler property, and um, I wanted to know, and actually the um, Golden Eagle, because Basin had owned it, and I know the new owner has done some upgrades and put the palm trees in and stuff. So I was wondering, were they ever involved in this discussion, or has that altered the way it's starting to look in your eyes? Or um, They've all been involved in the discussion to the extent that that they've been wanted <coughs> or willing to be involved. Um, Basin Street Properties was involved in that early uh, visioning workshop. They um, were more interested in talking about the riverfront project because that's kind of where their priority is. The um, there's been a shift in the um, LLC, I guess that that owns the Golden Eagle to a single individual, and he also has come in and and we've talked about this plan and he's received all the materials he's on the we have a, about a hundred people on the mailing list that have asked to receive all the materials so he's aware of it but he is also clear that at this point in time you know he doesn't have the intention of of redeveloping the site because the market isn't there to to support it but I think from the overall vision he understood understands the potential that that property that he that he owns has um, you know kind of getting back to to Councilmember Miller's comments that the paying part is going to be very difficult. You know, with redevelopment gone, it's going to be much more challenging to get the amenities that are envisioned in this. But our hope is that with the loss of redevelopment, new opportunities will come along with all this regional planning efforts that are going on. There's supposed to be a lot of money through grant opportunities to do some of these types of public improvements and infrastructure improvements to help support. TOD types of development and as part of the council um, goal setting one of the things was to, to really after the adoption of this to kind of start understanding and pursuing those new funding avenues and try and provide more public private partnerships in, in ways that we haven't done in the past to, to, to help facilitate the construction of these projects. The uh, Haystack piece or the Pitler piece um, has had many owners and many people interested in the site during this process um, but there is now a, a new owner they've already come into the city and uh, they're aware of this planning effort they are working on plans that would be in conformance with these changes and um, their intent is their intention at least that they've articulated today is to do a, a mixed-use project that would be consistent with this plan so there is the potential to actually see one of these catalyst sites um, be implemented shortly after the adoption of this plan which is would be really exciting so chair Wolpert may I just add on to that just in terms of the outreach <coughs> over the last two years we have done a lot of outreach just as people come into the planning office and are looking at 
properties in this area. Some of them have been, you know, I think that the Haystack property in particular, we got a lot of people coming through our doors to kind of explore, but we've been doing a lot of outreach to let people know what's going on, send people to Scott with specific questions, letting people know when the next workshops were, meetings that they could be a part of. So both through Scott's efforts as well as just kind of what happens in the, on a daily basis in the planning office, people have been invited to participate or given notice that something's happening that would impact that property. And then the third major property owner, of course, is SMART, and they've been part of the Technical Advisory Committee as well as attended pretty much all of the workshops as well as the Advisory Committee meetings throughout the process. So, And they actually have helped to fund the development of this plan. I wanted to comment to the fact that I feel it's very important for us to have vision for our assets, and this is, this is an area of a lot of opportunity. I live on the other side of it, um, closer to... Whole Foods, and um, I know for me, I walk it constantly, and it's it's you know blighted, and it's challenging to walk along. And I think this is so much potential. And when you, I know it's frustrating to think about the monetary side of it, but at the same time, the economy is improving, and if we don't have vision, we have nothing. And I think it's a marketability. It's it provides us some market value that we look at things this way, and it shows that we value our spaces and what the potential of them are. Um, I also want to point out that we have a lot of improvements taking place in that area, like the livery stable was just improved, the art center has been improved, the station. So when I look at it as somebody that lives there, there's kind of this string of pearls with major disconnects between it. And so I think we have to look at a way to blend our assets, which I think are the ability of uses in those areas, but also have a vision because people, there are developers who want to see that and want to come for that. And I think that's who we'd like to solicit. It's very frustrating to have somebody else's vision imposed upon you when you live somewhere. And I've experienced that and it's very frustrating. So I, I think it's important to keep that open-mindedness in our approach. I also wanted to take a, a chance to articulate a little bit more on what Dan had mentioned earlier is that we did, um, which I think was unique in this process, in that we had an economist on board from the get-go, and he was constantly running proformas on these plans, and uh, he, I can't remember, he had 50 or 70 spreadsheets of numbers that he was constantly crunching because we wanted him to be that wet blanket, to say, you know what, you know, this is feasible. And at the time that this plan was, you know, vision was being done was at the lowest point of the market and you know his results showed that yes it it is viable it's slim it's a challenge um, but since then we've revisited the impact fees and lowered them considerably especially for re residential as well as some of the non-residential categories and so we had Ed Starkey who's the economist actually rerun his spreadsheets with increased construction costs to reflect those changes keeping the leasing rates the same as they were when he first looked at it, and then incorporating the new fees and the viability of all this rose considerably. And you'll see that analysis is in as uh, part of the addendum. So, so we have actually looked at um, the feasibility aspect of of all of this. But it will take you know the right developers coming along that share that vision. So, Commissioner Elias, Scott, could you? expand a little bit on the how you lay over this kind of a plan in an area 
where you have existing uses that are becoming um, they're, they're sort of representative of a period petaluma and how do you weigh the economic benefit of that what is in existence with what your plan is proposing and then how do you transition that so that there's a um, that it works right. you, I think you understand what yeah, I'm trying no, to get absolutely. It. Can, can you expand on that a little bit well it's it's the natural evolution I think of any community is that things over time change but the premise that's in here is no different than what's in the central Petaluma specific plan currently in which we recognize and honor and actually protect all of those existing uses and recognize them as part of our heritage but also recognize them as part of that eclectic mix that makes downtown Petaluma such a unique place and so um, <coughs> desirable by to visit by so many people I mean I'm amazed every time I go on vacation how many people know when I say I, you know north of north of San Francisco and Petaluma oh I know Petaluma you know I love that downtown I love that you know it's got so much going on it's so unique this plan doesn't do any of this this plan doesn't require anybody to to build any of this if they already have a developed site. Um, if their use is non-conforming, they can continue as a non-conforming use. They may have challenges expanding that use because it's no longer um, consistent with the vision. But over time, you know, hopefully that mm -hmm. mix of uses will continue to thrive. Those that continue to work within the overall scheme will continue and, and new uses will, will emerge. You know, our downtown today is very different than it was 150 years ago. Right. And it will be very different, you know, in another 50 years. Mm -hmm. But hopefully we'll be equally cherished by everybody. So, Is, is there a timeline uh, projection on this in terms of how far out it will go? We get, we're talking about two generations, three generations, four generations? You know, I think, you know, what's exciting is the fact that the, that Pitler piece could be happening in a matter of years. So that's certainly the near term. Mm -hmm. Something like the um, Golden Eagle site, I wouldn't expect anything to happen there probably for 10 to 20 unless there was a dramatic change in the, mm -hmm. in the, the economy. Mm -hmm. And then Smart sits on a, a vacant parcel that has virtually, you know, everything ready to go from a, you know, vision and entitlement standpoint. Mm -hmm. So they could... Um, you know, if they want to do it, and they don't have the land use or the land costs sunk into it, if, assuming they want to hold right. ownership in it. So, you know, that could certainly happen in the nearer term as well. But I can't speak as to, to their intentions. But it's it's in a generation, you know, near, mid, and, and long term. Okay. I, I definitely think this, even sort of seeing construction starting again, it's uh, and being much more the 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 future being much more bright than it was when we started is it's it's definitely a 20 to 25 year plan I would say, but there can be some key as Scott mentioned key pieces that happen within the next two even two or three years potentially based on the way the economy is recovering. But what I I like about it being a 20 or 25 year plan is it can evolve like a real place evolves as opposed to kind of a project kind of popping up all at once and it's nearly impossible to make a project like that feel not feel sterile and like a big project so the fact that you could get you know 
projects happening over the course of 15 to 20 years, I think is a real benefit to sort of the eclecticism and the sort of diversity uh, of what will ultimately come out of the ground. <clears throat> That's all I have for right now. Okay. Commissioner Johnson. Um, I'm so glad you guys just mentioned that because when I look at this, I think it's beautiful. And the concept cannot be challenged. It's beautiful. But, my God, you even made the river blue. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, people haven't been able to do that for years here. But, um, it, how do I use the word? It's a pipe dream. I mean, literally nothing is there. You're going to gradually start it in a period of, econ of theatrical events. Um, with buildings that will have to come with a certain conformity and be built while all of this is going on and we haven't had a lot of demand although the pitler thing did turn over two or three times etc but i haven't heard of you know people beating down our door necessarily in this area so my first concept was and of course you know mr lipkitz and i go way back but i found myself agreeing with him totally because we're going to skip a lot of the steps, even though we have 20 years to do it. Because ostensibly, I don't know that we want to do an EIR. We'd like to do the minimum uh, MUP or whatever it is. Uh, is that a good idea? And another thing that occurs to me is the, these are more comments, I realize, but they are also questions. The constant reference to uh, Corona. We don't even own it, and we don't know if and when we're going to. And I wonder why it keeps being dallied in front of us when it doesn't even seem like smart is cooperating in that area. So my questions are more, yes, you have beauty. Yes, you guys did a fantastic job. Excellent presentation. But what have we got that we can put our arms around? A lot of very pretty pictures in a blue river. Um, and no, that's just, thank you for the work on the smart code because I was weaned in this particular adventure with uh, Spark about four or five years ago. And I found out that the smart code we had was misnamed because it had warrants and variances that literally made it impossible and et cetera. So I think some expedition there would be a good thing and a good thing now. I don't know how we can tie and untie all these things. So my question is more, do we want to go ahead and build a couple of parks and put some trees in and say we've started? How do we pay for it? We want to put in streets. The streets, we have an excellent reputation for keeping our streets up in this city, if you guys haven't noticed. Um, I'm not sure I want us to be owning new streets. But regardless, um, my questions are more concrete, economic, thought out. How is this thing really going to? I love Commissioner Elias's statement: three, four, five generations. Okay, fine. Have we planned it out that way? Is it? Are we just going to hope that all of a sudden somebody bangs on our door? And I think that was my closing comments instead of questions. I apologize, but I don't see anything here that I can put my arms around, except it's a great plan. Thank you. Know, uh, as you mentioned, they weren't exactly questions, and they were uh, certainly comments. But I, if you'd like, I can answer it to, to some extent. 
Okay. Um, well, first of all, the CPSP, when it was adopted in 2003, carried a similar vision. It didn't have as many pictures, but it did have a lot of those conceptual drawings. But what it did is it paved the way for the theater district. Remember, there's six blocks that are now an extension of our downtown that were virtually dirt, gravel, bumpy, crappy roads, uh, vacant land uses, and there was no there there. A vision came along in the form of the CPSP, a smart code that said these are the forms that we're looking for, and lo and behold, look what you got. Look at the downtown river apartments, which is 81 units of affordable housing that came into town and actually put retail on the first floor and did a mixed-use project. So these things do happen when you have a plan that has that vision. I can't tell you how many people came knocking on the door uh, over in planning, wanting to buy the Pitler piece and wanting to put a Walgreens with a drive-through and a surface parking lot in the middle. And by having this vision and having this set of standards in place has allowed us to be able to say, no, we want more for this community, we deserve more for this community, mm -hmm. and we, if we have to wait for it, then we'll wait for it. I'm never going to get the river blue, not without put, dumping a bunch of dye in it. I, I recognize that. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but there are times when that river, is, especially at high tide, is a, is a beautiful body of water and it is cherished by this community. So I think uh, with my own kind of commentary, there's a, a little bit of, a, of an answer for you. And it's going to be incumbent upon people that want to come here and do this type of development. And historically, those people have continued to emerge here time in and time out. For mm -hmm. 10 years, nothing happened in downtown. Literally nothing before the theater district. And then boom, six blocks plus the downtown river apartment. So I don't think it's necessarily just a, a pipe dream, but we're going to be dreaming about it for a little while before it potentially happens. So. Okay. Um, now let's go tackle the smart code amendments. Take a break. I need to need to take a break. Okay, we'll take a five-minute break um, and be back here at twenty-five after eight.
Okay, we are reconvened. Uh, we were just about to uh, ask some questions regarding the uh, smart code amendments. Um, would we like to start at the end again? I'd like to start with one. Would you? With one. Commissioner Elias. And it comes about because we got a letter, a late letter from um, the smart people. And I want to know how what we're going to be doing is impacted or is, how does it change what we're going to be deciding on tonight? What is, what's, the inter, what's the interface between what they can do and what the city can do? Well, I, I think they fairly articulated it in their letter, and they are correct in that if they are doing transit-related facilities, the way that the, the government code is written, and Leslie can correct me if I'm wrong, they are exempt from the city's regulations. Now, how those, what's defined as a transit facility will certainly be up for discussion. If they were to do TOD, similar to what's being proposed here, which is what they've always expressed that they wanted to do on that site, which is partly why they actually helped fund this <coughs> process, was so that they could actually um, have a forum to kind of help shape what the future of that property looks like so that when the time comes to do a joint development project that they would already have the public support and buy-in necessary. Mm -hmm. um, if, if I may, Scott, um, one of the um, specific parts of what will happen under the plan is controlled by statutory laws that control what SMART can and can't do. SMART. Um, was created as a rail district in a special section of the Public Utilities Code, and in those provisions it has specific language stating that to the extent that SMART is con constructing rail transit facilities, and that's a defined term, um, they are not subject to local zoning and planning laws. There's another section that says to the extent they are proposing certain types of transit-oriented development within a quarter mile of a transit site, they are, in fact, subject to city 
local city zoning and regulations. It's it's much like school districts. Yeah. You know, when a district comes in and proposes something for school district purposes, they're not necessarily subject to local zoning. When they propose a market development, they are. It's a similar type of analysis for SMART, and we won't know that until SMART proposes a project for that site. Right. No, and that was the second part that I was about to <coughs> articulate, so thank you. The um, so the other piece of their letter is uh, a concern which they have expressed during the course of the process, which is that that linear park or linear open space piece is, is too wide. They're, they're not a big um, proponent of that. Um, we've left it in there because the Citizen Advisory Committee and so many other people that have been involved in this process have recognized the need for that parcel to do something more because it's going to be charged with handling the, the existing bus transit mall, the new station, as well as any future development on that site. And so there was this overwhelming sense that there needed to be a little bit more of this openness that kind of helped bring people to the station, but also made that a, a desirable address, given everything else that's going to be going on there by creating a, a public amenity as part of that. Now, with that said, the width of that open space is negotiable. Um, the reason that we put the warrant and variance process into this plan was to get us away from, you know, those types of requirements that said, you know, you shall do this. Mm -hmm. Because if they were to come with a TOD project, for example, mm -hmm. that showed that, you know what, we just can't make this open space element as wide as is desired by the city and still meet our parking needs or our access needs and our other needs on that site, we need to narrow it, then there's a process for doing that. And that process would you know, be handled at the staff level in terms of the initial recommendation, but then would make its way to the planning commission during the whole um, architectural review process. So is that, is that strip, that narrow open space strip, or that open space strip owned by, by SMART? That whole property currently is owned by the, by the SMART agency, By yes. SMART. So they could do what they want based on what I'm understanding. That if they're they, doing transit-oriented development, they're beholden to our regulations. If they're doing oh, they something are. like a parking garage or a operations facility or something that is a transit facility, uh -huh. then they are not subject to our regulations is, is the short version of so it. So how, how do you distinguish between what is controlled or regulated by the city and what is not? What is what is not subject to city regulation would be something necessary for operation of the rail transit system. And that doesn't mean just the train cars and the rails. It means a station, if there were a parking um, facility that was available only to train riders, that would be a, a, like a BART Mm -hmm. Parking garage okay, that yeah. would be a ra yeah. that could be considered a rail transit facility, but if there was a combination of a facility that was designed to serve both the rail transit operation and a private project or a portion of a private project, we think that would be subject to city zoning and planning laws. We think they that would be. I think that's what the law says. Oh, okay. They've acknowledged it in their letter as well. Okay. And they participated in in this in this. Um, from day one, they helped. They helped fund it, and they helped. Fund, okay, Cause that's, that's what. Because when I got the letter, I wrote, well, why why are we getting this now? And I couldn't. It was kind of like a little bit through a little wrench. Um, 
Okay. I just got it and then needed to ask about it. It was like, what do we do? Let me Why? just say Why a couple more things is we are very cognizant of sort of the size of that linear park and how it impacted the development of those two flanking blocks that were being created. So a couple of different things. We studied very carefully the remaining lot block sizes to make sure that they could get a sort of a standard building footprint and a detached parking structure in the long term, mm -hmm. even with the width of that linear park. So the linear park's actually pretty tight. It's actually tighter than I might typically like it or design it. The other thing that we did kind of as a trade-off is we made six stories by right for a large portion of those two parcels as opposed to six, four stories by right and then six stories with the approval of the Planning Commission. So it was a bit of a, we, we realized there was a bit of a trade-off and we, we feel that there is uh, just um, there's a pattern of creating value with with buildings that front onto public spaces. There's lots of studies that have yeah. been so. There's also inherent value that's created on the buildings fronting uh, public spaces versus <coughs> versus not. So we're very cognizant of that. Okay. Is there a slide that you can show us where you can show us the? property that's actually owned by SMART as opposed to other um, entities? <coughs> so when looking, at the, um, when looking at the catalyst sites, this one, uh, see I'm pointing into my eye instead of there. Okay, so um, this entire block right here bounded by Copeland Street, East D Street, Lakeville Street is all owned by SMART. This is a parcel uh, where, the, uh, where we did all the work to, to rehab those buildings, where the visitor center and art center are is one parcel, and then this is a, a, another parcel. This parcel right here is what's known as the Haystack or the Pitler mm -hmm. parcel. Hopefully we'll get a better name for that soon. Um, that's single ownership, and then this parcel here is all Golden Eagle. So there's really three primary property owners within this um, master plan area. Thank you. I just had a question because I'm not familiar with what SMART's planning for their other station areas. And so have you seen anything that they've actually proposed for a site that's near a station if they own the property? Because I'm just wondering what they're doing with their other sites, if that might give us some idea into what they view as an asset with these sites. Yeah, you could do some research into <coughs> Santa Rosa Railroad Square. I know that they'd actually gone through a whole TOD <coughs> plan that had been approved. I know that I believe the majority of it hasn't been built. Uh, there were some... I don't, I don't recall what the issues were, but you can look up to, to that. Um, <clears throat> from the get-go, though, SMART's initial input into this process was that they wanted this site to, to be a transit-oriented development site in that the majority of the passengers arriving at this station would derive from the SMART parcel in the combination of commercial, employment, residential type of uses, as well as the surrounding neighborhoods and that the Corona Road site would be more of the park and ride um, type of facility. And so that's why this this more of a TOD vision is what's being presented here as part of this plan. So they've always expressed um, up until that letter that we just received their desire to do TOD on the site. So, so is the is the 
what is this referred to this the Petaluma station uh, the downtown station the downtown yeah. station is this anticipated to be the higher ridership station um, interestingly in smart studies the Corona Road site was always anticipated to have higher ridership to have higher ridership yes. at Corona then you'll get a seat that's on. why from our planning perspective getting back to some of the other discussions we're not giving up from the city's perspective on that vision of having our second station in town. It mm. serves the junior college, it serves the health center, mm -hmm. it serves all the employment mm -hmm. on the north side of town, and a whole bunch of residential that is already set up to access it via class one paths along the creeks and all of that. So from okay. the city's perspective, absolutely, having a, a second station is, is needed, and it's part of what makes this downtown station succeed in this format. Yeah. <coughs> There's a balance between those two sites. And that's and, reflected and, in this plan. And, and these parking, these these parking areas that you've you've got in there, the, those two that flank on uh, East D Street, uh, D Street and Washington, mm -hmm. uh, are those those will eventually be structures. Is that the? It depends on the building program that they come forward with. Okay. If they can meet their parking needs um, by doing tuck under and surface parking, then they could do that. But, but they could also. Go up. Go up. But there could be a single and platform the, or the, multiple. And will the frontages uh, on, um, is that Copeland that goes through there or Weller? Uh, Copeland. That's Copeland, yeah. Mm -hmm. So are the frontages on Washington and D Street and Copeland, that's where the, 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 uh, the, ci the civic uses would be rather than the, the smart parking uses, right? Well, the transit mall would continue along this side of Copeland Street uh -huh. um, because that, that investment's been made and in, in, in reality, those, uh, the majority of those buses are gonna be, are serving inter-regional type of trips already anyways and aren't necessarily competing with SMART. But what's gonna need to start happening up here is that whole kiss and ride concept or where people can drop passengers off, mm -hmm. but also where there's SMART shuttles that'll be which may actually be Petaluma Transit, that'll be timed with the arrivals of the trains will need to occur in this space. Okay. And then you're also gonna need this for circulation because you have very limited access coming off of East D Street and Washington Street because of the proximity of the rail line coming right through here in these major intersections. I see, okay. Okay, <clears throat> that's all I have for right now. I have a How does the um, the code, the smart code, deal with uh, non-conforming existing buildings or uses? And um, and it would help if you could clarify. Warrant is still kind of a new term to me. Um, how that's different than um, a zoning code amendment or uh, variance? The way that the warrant uh, is set up, um, and that's really the new term, the variance is very similar to, to what's in okay. the existing zoning ordinance that represents a, more of a physical constraint or hardship. The uh, warrant process basically um, allows flexibility in the regulations as long as you're meeting the overall intent of the plan. And so you'll remember in the beginning of the SMART code um, amendments, there's a much expanded um, intention or statement of intent. Mm -hmm. So as an example of, you know, just to use this as, a, as one of the examples, you know, the intent is that we need a transverse street there and it needs to have some public um, benefit to it in terms of facilitating all the uh, bike and pedestrian needs, et cetera, between downtown, the transit mall and all that that's going on there. 
the code calls for that to be that public space in the middle to be 36 feet wide they could ask for a warrant to change the width of that particular regulation or that requirement based on you know a set of issues that they identify and that we we concur with and in support um, if we were to go to the example of a particular use such as a gas station which currently in the CPSB is not allowed in any of the T4 T5 or T6 zones that's a pretty strong statement of intent that they're not allowed so you couldn't just say you know you can add a gas station or expand a gas station type of use through a warrant because that wouldn't necessarily be supported by the overall intent that's in there so um, it allows flexibility in the you know those other aspects but not necessarily the use itself and then getting to your issue of non-conforming uses any non-conforming use be it here or elsewhere in the city can continue that use runs with the land not with the land right. owner and so if someone were to sell an industrial use that's no longer permitted in the area that use can continue even if that use goes out of business if it's reinstated with that use or a similar intensity type of use within a year it can still continue and there's also the the um, yeah no, I'll leave that at that I think in your as probably a general statement and maybe it's not applicable but where we have changed uh, uses or, or zones are we providing a better financial opportunity for that property by doing so or or have we downgraded the property by changing zones um, if you're referring to the T6 to T5 in my opinion we've added value to it because we've given it a, a land use designation that really reflects the potential that's out there be it in the mid or the, the long term right it both protects the uses that are currently there but doesn't have such an onerous set of requirements that came along with the T6 that just are not viable in the market probably even the, in the long term I don't know if Dan you have anything to add to that but but that would be my contention okay yeah, I think there's there's been a very delicate balance of predictability and flexibility but the great thing is we had a great foundation with the central Petaluma specific plan that we really are just building upon and in tweaking um, in addition to what Scott talked about one of the other major changes that I forgot to mention is the current central Petaluma specific plan requires ground floor shop fronts on this entire area actually the, the the immediate area and we based on our economic assessment and retail assessment realize that that's just not practically feasible so we we went through a lot of uh, study of where we want to focus that commercial and retail ground floor in like a shop front type of environment to activate that pedestrian experience and where we can leave it much more flexible and let the developer come in decide well there's more market here for residential so there's going to be residential coming down to the street <coughs> so we, we we provided a lot more flexibility in ground floor use and ground floor frontage as well as um, just really um, building upon the really diverse range of uses that are allowed in the existing central Petaluma specific plan including the industrial uses which we aside from the T6 the shift of industrial out of T6, we we actually expanded the breadth of industrial uses that are allowed in T5. So okay. Could you could you repeat could you repeat that again? You've expanded the. We have not reduced the allowed industrial uses in T5. We've 
we've, um, from what I understand, from what I'm remembering, we made minor additions, additional industrial uses to in the T5 area. We didn't actually remove any, we didn't remove any uh, industrial uses that are allowed currently out of the use tables in terms of being permitted. So the, so the, so the existing uses that are of an industrial nature would not be non-conforming? In this, in this, unless they were in T6, unless they were, I mean, if they're, if they were not non-conform, if they're currently non-conforming in the central pedalum specific plan, it's likely that they will continue to be non-conforming. Mm -hmm. But I wouldn't say there's anything that we did in particular in the T5 to actually add a lot more non-conforming industrial uses. Yeah, and, and the majority of the industrial uses that are currently within that area are conforming, so there's not even a non-conforming issue. There's a pretty broad range of industrial uses that have been permitted within the CPSP through the original smart code that are continued to be permitted as part of this. So and the, so, so the existing uses could continue on in perpetuity absolutely. as they're currently doing. With, and not even run up against the non-conformance issue. And if they wanted to change their use, they could, but then they'd have to conform to whatever the new, the new requirements are. Scott, um, since Mr. Singh has sat here and friend uh, most of the evening, is they can continue unless they make any changes to the site, or is there the wiggle issue room is, there? Is the expansion of the use in the way that a gas station is currently defined is that it's not just the pumps, but it's also the markets, any of the accessory buildings that are part of it. So, technically, by definition, building a mark, tearing down the um, car, car wash. wash and putting a market there would be an expansion of the of the use. And as it's not a permitted use, they technically couldn't do that. Now they could divide the parcel, keep the gas station, <laughs> yeah. and then do a market there, but that's not necessarily a desirable right. approach because there's more costs involved in it. They have to coordinate easements and that sort of thing. And so their request to you is really, and, and it wasn't really in staff's place to do it, but this is really a good avenue. We did this throughout the general plan where individual property owners that have been running into problems, this is a great forum to kind of have that discussion that doesn't necessarily make it a parcel specific zoning change. If we were to, for, if you were, for example, to recommend that this be changed to a CUP, then that would apply to any parcel within the T5 area, not just that particular property. And it's really, you know, it's, it's a good policy discussion to have and a recommendation to, to make as to whether you wanna continue to have those as not allowed uses that'll eventually just disappear from this area altogether, or whether there is merit in those types of uses being able to continue and being able to expand subject to a CUP, in which case you'd recommend that that particular use be allowed as a CUP and then it could happen elsewhere. Um, but there would obviously be, there's not a lot of sites that would necessarily work for that, but does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Commissioner Abercrombie? No, I think Kathy. No, I had I did have, I did have a question. Um, how many um, how many existing non-conforming businesses are affected by this? You know, we we talked about that at the last citizens advisory committee meeting, and one of the things I was going to try and do is figure that out. I don't have an easy way of knowing every single business that's in every single building and being able to determine whether it's a 
existing non-conforming use. We typically find out about these things when people decide that they want to do something with their property. I mean, it's the, it's the nature of Do you have an estimate? Ballpark? No? Okay. I don't. I don't think that there's an inordinate amount of them, or we'd be hearing a lot more okay. from it. So. Okay. That was my second question. <laughs> um, I just wanted to I'm sorry. I wanted to piggyback on the gas station conversation that I do think something that does come out of it that is of value to you is that there's not going to be another gas station in this area. And so as much as your use is secured there, you have a regional control there of that market share. And I think that does have a value to it that can be an asset in this conversation. And I did also look at the tenants at um, Mr. Winner. Winner. Weiner. Um, I did look at the tenants at your site and I see that there's a vibrancy there in uses and there are businesses that I think are really valid and useful in that area and it was exciting because I don't I didn't know so it was a nice opportunity to look at what you're doing and I think it sounds like you'll have the opportunity to continue those uses beyond that but I understand your fear because you've owned the property for a long time and if you did want to pass on the uses so I would like to have a conversation about since you were involved in these conversations directly which you guys thought when you were talking about smart code as to how existing businesses that weren't that weren't conforming how we might handle that you know and I know it sounds like the project to project basis is, would be really hard to determine who that would affect but to what degree can we say that we'd like to see some help for these owners so they don't feel at a loss when it comes time to sell well I think Scott will explain that that <laughs> the um, a lot of these came to light at our very last meeting and it hasn't been a big issue. We haven't had a lot of property owners coming up during all these workshops um, explaining to us how they're going to be uh, hurt by this. I also wanted to add that from what I understand, given the range of uses that are on Mr. Weiner's property, for example, I don't believe any of them are nonconforming. Part of his concern is that prior to the CPSP, he did have an industrial land use designation, which allowed a whole much broader range of industrial type of uses on that property and it's true he couldn't now add one of those former industrial type of uses if it's not currently permitted but if you look at that use table that's in the smart code um, in the addendum there's still a whole host of different industrial uses that are allowed on that property so its viability in today's market or a future market are completely unchanged um, so I just wanted to make sure that I got that out there. There's no requirement that his property develop with residential mixed use. And the majority of his uses, as I understand them, are conforming uses. So that's not an issue of those from a sale standpoint. So I understand the issues related to the, to the road and all that, as well as the original CPSP process. But those are both out of the control of this particular process. So. Can you, Scott, could you, could you give some Clarity on. <coughs> Thank you, pardon. Could you give some clarity on how you, or some framework around what is considered an expansion of use versus an expansion of the property? How does it's typically square footage, and Heather, you can weigh in if you feel differently. But it's it's typically based on square footage or some other measure of increased intensity, but it usually relies on, you know, a physical expansion 
No, buildings. the way the code reads is a non-conforming use or structure shall not be enlarged, extended, or moved to a different portion of the lot or parcel. So does square footage translate to use? Is no, that but if, if, if let's, uh, I mean, using, if, if you had a, a, a building where it's a 7,000 square foot building and it's got a non-conforming use in, in it, and they wanted to do an addition to add 5,000 square feet, we would think of that as they're expanding their use. Okay. So it kind of depends on, on uh, although a single family home, the use isn't by square footage because you can have a single family home that's 600 square feet or 6,000 square feet and they're still a single family home. So some of it depends on what type of use you're looking at. But for instance, with the gas station, um, one of the things that the Sings were looking at is building a new building for a, a mini mart, which is included as, when you look at the definition of gas station, that's included as part of the gas station. <coughs> and so that was looked at as, well, that would be an expansion because you would be expanding that use to now. So even though it's retail, it is a form of retail use, it would not be something that could be done on that property. Right. And so what we've talked about with the Sings in particular, Scott and I have both met with the Sings a number of times to talk this through and talk about it is, yes, a retail store is a permitted use in the T5. So if, if they were to come and do a retail store no connection to the gas station, meeting all the development standards of the SMART code. Theoretically, that could be, and we had recommended that they do a lot split, so they're completely separate. One of the things, one of the reasons why that doesn't work with a gas station is because we would require the retail store to be separate from the gas station and the gas station to operate totally separate from the convenience store because once you tie them together, it's kind of one big use. So things usually when um, a gas station has a mini mart, you go inside to pay for your gas, right? You Usually the front door is oriented to the gas station. I mean, there's all these kind of connections, and so it, it's some of those issues that we've been talking about. Is so, so yes, a, a, a market, a retail market, is a permitted use in the T5. But the, register, the, 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 the register to pay for the gas can't be in that. Well, and and we we would expect it to meet all 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 standards of, you know, faced up at the at the property line, street oriented, all of the frontage requirements and building requirements of the smart code. Would a variance or a warrant uh, apply? My understanding is a, a, a warrant doesn't apply for expansion of a nonconforming use. And a variance is about a physical hardship on the property, like a creek or a, you know something that makes it impossible for them to get the same rights as their neighbors and meet all the standards. Are there any other questions about the SMART code? 
Commissioner Elias. There was a remark in, in the presentation about a 15% parking requirement, and, and I'm not sure I understood that exactly the way it was meant. It says something about 15% triggers no office parking requirement. Yeah, the, the <coughs> we, we discussed the approach to parking quite a bit from start to finish with Nelson Nygaard, and we all agreed that the fact that the the parking requirements had sunsetted was a, a mistake based on how little had been built because, let's see, was 2008 when they sunsetted about? So, um, so the approach is that when the city uh, can find the time, energy, and budget to go through a process of creating a parking management strategy for this district and can actually monitor so that there's at least 15% of the spaces available within the area at one time. It's always sort of maintained at always having 50% vacancy. Um, but at the point where the city can actually create that study and put that parking management into place, then the parking requirements will actually will go away. But until then, we've established required off-street parking numbers that are in effect until the city can actually take that step. Does that make sense? So, so right now, if you build in T5, I don't remember the exact requirements, but whether it's residential or commercial, you're required to provide uh, X number of spaces for commercial and X number of spaces for each residential unit off street in a, in a surface parking lot or a parking structure. And, but that, would, that requirement would go away at the point that the city can actually create this parking management strategy and implement it. So at that point, there actually would be no requirements for off-street parking. So a developed, a developed property that had that 15%, or not the 15%, but that had the uh, requisite parking mm -hmm. when it was developed, at some point in time, the parking requirement would go away, and they could then develop that area that they had allocated for parking? Two things could happen if it was surface parking. Mm -hmm. It would become developable. Mm -hmm. If it were a parking structure, I'm assuming that it could actually be put on the market and actually become public parking so that somebody could pay mm -hmm. to use that parking space. And the parking, the to manage the parking, the city has this requirement or they could uh, establish a parking district Yes, it, it would be through a series of, uh, the, the parking management strategy would include a number of things, including likely um, sort of meters on the streets where they can actually, there's very sophisticated systems now where you can actually sort of digitally follow sort of when it's being used and not uh, in terms of vacancy. It would be, you know, there may be a permitting system in place. Um, you know, it, it might be just for this immediate area, but it's likely that as transit comes, it would likely want to be um, you know, expand to the larger half-mile radius, like you get around the BART stations even in El Cerrito or uh, a Berkeley. Um, so, so it's really saying the sunsetting doesn't make sense until a comprehensive parking management strategy plan can be done. So up until then, we're going to require those parking spaces to be off-street to be provided by the developers. I'm just wondering why, why, why? 
Why why we're requiring developers to have parking if they don't want to have parking? Why do they have to have it? Um, maybe it, maybe that's just a philosophical a good question. Thing. And we actually debated about this amongst our team because I'm usually the one pushing for no off street parking requirements. So I'm gonna. Uh, Scott's been more involved with that conversation with Nelson Nygaard, so I want him to chime in in terms of. Okay. Okay. I think the reality and. Petaluma's context at this point in time, and certainly in the mid to, to even long term, is is that you can't build a project that doesn't have some form of parking associated with it. It won't have any market viability. You can't build a home without a parking space at this point in time. We're just not that urban of a, of a context. When the CPSP was originally done, and that's one of the changes that have been made in this plan, there was this notion that we'd have all these large civic parking structures that then those uses could rely upon um, as part of these parking districts, similar to the theater district. Six blocks of development, there's really one parking garage to serve all that. But mm -hmm. you had one landowner. You had redevelopment. You had a whole host of things that allowed that situation to happen. We now have fractured ownership. There's nobody that's volunteering to say, hey, let's just put a parking garage on my property. Um, so we've taken the approach of every project should um, handle their parking requirements on site now those parking requirements, similar with the intent of the CPSB and the previous smart code, are lower than anywhere else in the city. So it's not, you know, requiring however many, you know, two spaces off street for every residential unit. It requires one. Um, it's not requiring three per thousand square feet. It's requiring two per thousand square feet for most non-residential uses. And so it's a lower parking requirement. Mm -hmm. But it recognizes the reality um, at this point in time that people are still driving cars and still want to have a parking place close to home. So these gar these garages, these parkings, either um, open parking on, you know, on surface parking or in a structure, who who owns those parking structures then? Those are owned by those particular developments, unless they enter into some sort of shared parking agreements with other properties to try and balance out parking demand. Okay. But the way that this is currently set up, and then that amount of parking is scalable, so, for example, if Smart wanted to do parking to serve their development on site, but also wanted to provide parking to serve um, transit riders, they could increase the number of levels of parking there. Mm -hmm. That's beyond just what's required to meet the residential and non-residential uses that may be proposed on that site. Okay. So it, it introduces a lot more flexibility than what we had before, um, and also recognizing that the there's no funding mechanism for those types of parking structures in the future at this point. Thank you. Mm -hmm. So if there's no further questions on uh, smart code amendments, I'd like to move on to the uh, negative declaration. And Scott, please don't sit down quite yet. Um, They're so comfortable. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I bet they are. <laughs> um, could you give us a summary on the purpose of this negative deck I understand um, that we're we're trying not to cover ground that's already been covered through the general plan and issues that may surface or require uh, an EIR during development but but why is this step important um, the step is important because this it, by definition is a project it needs environmental review we've looked at what level of environmental review based on the uh, potential impacts of this project compared to the existing um, 
plans that are in place, because remember this is a master plan, this is not a specific development proposal. Um, as a master plan, this doesn't change any of the land uses or the intensities that aren't already envisioned in the general plan as well as the central Petaluma specific plan, so there's no additional um, impacts per se. Now that's not to say that an individual project, when it comes forward, is exempt from environmental review. Quite the contrary. They will likely be doing mitigated neg decks that require traffic studies and, uh, and geotechnical studies and all that, just like the theater district did. You know, the theater district is very similar to some of the statements that were made earlier. You know, that sits on, those new buildings are on 25 or 35 foot pilings that were driven into the ground. I heard them every day yeah. while I was sitting in my office right <laughs> around the corner here getting put in. And it was shocking how easily they went in for the first, you know, yeah. uh, dozen feet or more. So, but it doesn't mean that those properties are rendered undevelopable. And it doesn't mean that those properties are going to be developed without doing that based on the geotechnical analyses that will be done as part of that review. So really what the mitigating deck deck is doing is carrying forward all the mitigations that are in the general plan and making sure that those are taken into consideration in any future projects here as well as any uh, project-specific environmental review that's necessary. The city invested an incredible amount of money, time, and resources in developing the EIR for the general plan, and that's was done for that very reason, to help, you know, offset those costs down the road, so. Okay, thank you. Uh, with that explanation, who has some questions? Councilmember Miller. I actually just have um, one, and it's about attachment B, and um, it's at the bottom of the first page. And there's a, a other public agencies whose approval is required, permits, financial approval, or participation agreements. Wouldn't SMART be in that group? I mean, it's it's blank over to the side of it, and I their, just their approvals aren't required for this master plan. They okay. have been a funder; they've been involved in it, so they're aware of it. They've received all these documents, so it's not like they're an outside agency that's unaware of this okay. particular project okay thank you councilwoman miller uh, the distinction is they're not an entitling agency um, with any permitting authority for the master plan okay thank you commissioner Abercrombie, nothing no. commissioner elias commissioner johnson well then we've possibly come to the end of this discussion I'm, I'm, I'm sorry I do have another question oh you do now it's not about it's it's not about the you can revisit another topic it has to do again with the um, smart code because I, I forgot to mention it now's your time okay so with the smart code um, there were just a couple of things that I looked at and I thought I'd like to see those um, firmed up a little bit and in attachment E on uh, it's page number 94 where there was a lot of red ink um, so what I, was what I want to refer to here is um, where the text begins right at the very top of signs copy design and layout where does that come from from where is that coming <laughs> that's in the um, actual 
I'd have to look at the. It's in attachment D. The only change from attachment okay. D here is that we mislabeled the, uh, the 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 numbering for that particular category. So we're pointing that out okay. in, in the spirit of being open. okay. So that was that. I uh, thank you for that. That that was one of the things. The other is that with regard to the language itself, mm -hmm. um, I'm I wonder. I, I want to know why. There's, there's such flexibility in this when we're talking about uh, the, the sign and design and copy. Why is there so much flexibility in it? Why, is, why, isn't, why doesn't the first sign say copy, design, and layout? It seems to me there should be something in there like shall be or shall be consistent with the principles. You're referring to the kind of the more vague recommendations should be avoided? Rather than is encouraged, but I not think, required. I think if you look in the SMART code, page 93, the, the, the sentence, the two the lines of that sentence. before specifically say the city does not regulate message co content, copy of signs. However, the following are, are principles that they kind of recommend. Oh, yeah. So that's, it really refers to the content of those signs, which we really should be <clears throat> regulating. I'm sorry. Could you could you re refocus? Right. So if you look at if page you look 93? at page ninety three, the D. Uh huh. That's the beginning of the section you're looking at in attachment. Okay. The city does not regulate the message content of signs. However, the following are principles of copy design and layout that can enhance the readability and attractiveness of signs. So copy, then it goes on, copy design and layout cons consistent with these principles is encouraged but not required. Because the city- We don't regulate copy. Okay. So it's some suggestions, but it's, it's kind of prefacing that the city doesn't and I guess that that's the same that's the same principle that would hold with all of these other uh, small notes that I have in here There's like number one for example the sign signed copy should relate rather than shall relate is it the same thing that Commissioner applies there? Elias, the um, there's a difference in subsection D from subsections a B and C which are mandatory and the, the parts that are mandatory relate to um, design size element but the the content is what's dealt with in exhibit in, in subsection D, and the city has less authority to regulate content than it does to design and other types of structural elements okay. that are mandatory in the first three subsections. So when we talk about size and and um, so many so size of a letter relative to the amount of frontage there is on property, that's more design rather than copy. The design elements are all listed in A, B, and C, and there are, are okay. several elements to those. Okay. And is copy, uh, when you, you referred to, you said uh, content, I believe. Is that the same as copy? The message is, the message content is the copy. That's the copy, okay. Yeah. Okay. And again, when it gets down to D3 on lighting, that again shifts back to mandatory language. Okay, and then in that regard, with temporary signs, 
that was there was one one change I'd like to see there was the temporary item C uh, on that page 94 that we have uh, temporary posters may displayed for a maximum of 60 days and I would like to see that reduced to 30 days I don't know why what's the point of a 60-day temporary sign it borders on permanent in my opinion I don't know how anybody else feels about that. I think one way to envision that is to look at where signs are commonly hung and see like when PEFs having an event and they want you to buy tickets for their right. fundraiser, they feel like the maximum buildup that they'll see the URL and go on and buy the tickets or for, I mean a lot of the parade, there's like the banner across the street and I think that's like a shorter term when it's mm -hmm. that scale and I don't know how that's really managed. <coughs> I think it's up to the property owner to decide if a banner is on site like at Lakeville and and D, how you see those ones up there. And I think that would be the only real circumstance because they're an asset to people and the longer they hang there, the more they deteriorate. So a lot of times you do see them change, but it feels like they're, they're always there. Are there examples that we have of need, the need for 60 days? I guess I don't feel that strongly that the 60 days is is super necessary. I, I can kind of see both sides in terms of the benefits of it promoting a nice public event for 60 days makes sense. But then you think of the opposite side of uh, a bar or even a market having like Budweiser, <laughs> vinyl Budweiser signs mm -hmm. or something that, that get displayed and you wouldn't want those up for that long. So. Um, so I guess I don't feel that strongly that the 60 days, there's not like a, a national standard that 60 days is Well, the other, you know, the other thing about it is that there isn't anything here that says that whoever's putting up this banner can't apply for another temporary sign for another 60 days concurrently or consecutively with this. And so there's nothing in here that precludes that from happening. So Except I can, the wisdom of the planning department. Except for what? The wisdom of the planning department. The wisdom of the planning department. <laughs> there any other comments? Does anybody have, have well, any? Well, I, I had a question about the signage just on, on big signage that's non-conforming non now. When this takes effect, does, does that mean that signage has to come down? Um, is it like physical property that as long as it's not being changed, it can stay? If, if I remember correctly, I don't. I, I, I'm pretty sure it's treated the same way just as long as it's not expanded. So some buildings that have had vinyl banners as their permanent sign for years can continue to have vinyl banners as I, their... I, I don't think vinyl banners as a um, permanent sign is a legal non-conforming sign. Okay. It's just... It's already... It's, it's already... It, it, we wouldn't issue it's just a sign permit oh. for a... a plastic banner as a sign okay so it's just an uh, enforcement issue right um, for example like the painted signage that's pretty prominent in in some of the industrial areas um, that's that's a really great asset for mm -hmm. the character of the place so which, right. which signage is that painted signage and I can't think of exact examples but I know uh, coca-cola sign yeah, on the Lanart building. Kentucky Street. Um, the Ghirardelli sign on the side of the uh, livery stable, the River Heritage Center. 
That's not that's not a plastic sign, is it? No, it's a painted sign. Oh, yeah. the painted sign. Yeah, painted. A painted. Would, oh, the Coca-Cola. Okay, yeah, yeah. Right. yeah. You know, yeah. we're even hinting at wanting to encourage that, as is seen generally in this illustration with the painted Petaluma sign on, because mm-hmm. that's that's kind of part of uh, the history of the place, and so we want to encourage encourage that to to continue. Mm-hmm. So there's no no other discuss. Nobody cares whether there's 60 days then on this. I predict it. Okay, fine. Would anyone like to entertain a uh, motion? Uh, <coughs> if, all right, if, if I Johnson. may, uh, Mr. Chairman. Yes. On the resolution itself, if we're going to get that far, um, there is one additional finding that needs to be added to the resolution and Heather has the language for that I believe simply to conform to the because there's no specific provision in the smart code about requirements for amendments we defaulted to the IZO and there's a, a finding that the Planning Commission must make generally that it's con- that the proposed zoning amendments only the smart code amendments are consistent with the general plan and conform or conform to the general plan and consistent with the general public health welfare and necessity but Heather can read that additional uh, and clarify for me, please, that we are not voting on this. We are just uh, passing it on to City Council with our comments, correct? Our recommendations? You are voting on the resolution, If should a motion be made. You are voting on the resolution to pass the resolution to forward a recommendation to the... Okay. Okay. So this resolution this is somewhat is more formal than if it was only the environmental review because mm-hmm. it involves a zoning amendment. Right. Sure. I, I can add the language should a motion be made. Staff recommends or we recommend that the planning commission adopt a resolution recommending that the city council approve a mitigated, mitigated negative debt for the Penluma Smart Rail Station area. Todd master plan and recommending approval of the master plan and recommending adoption of the smart code amendments in addition to uh, the additional finding would be under now therefore be it resolved um, adding a, a new number one that says finds that the proposed smart code amendments are in conformance with the Petaluma general plan and consistent with the public necessity convenience and general welfare Okay. So that would be the new number one. One would become two, three, four. So you'd now have four items under there. Now, therefore, be it resolved. Would someone like to second that motion? I'll second. Thank you. Any discussion? Then those in favor? Aye. 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 It's unanimous. <laughs> Thank you. I didn't uh, ask if anyone would like to make any closing remarks, but I know I would. Um, I guess partly because I've been involved with this for for the two years, but. But I uh, honestly could not be more excited um, 
about about the results of this. <coughs> And, and I think it began from the very first uh, workshop when uh, Scott introduced the team and who was going to be involved. And I have seen each, uh, each member of uh, your team, Dan, really add significant parts in, in making this what it's become. And, and not only that, I was very impressed by um, the people of our community that, that were on the advisory committee, uh, chaired by Teresa Barrett, that uh, had such expertise in so many different things from, uh, from bus schedules to uh, all kinds of transit issues, circulation. Um, it was a, a very powerful team. But, uh, you know, Commissioner Johnson kind of hit this on the head because this this is this is a dream, but a, what is a dream? It's a it's a vision, and without without a vision, I think you get bad development, and there's plenty of examples of that. So when, as Scott said, when we have somebody that is interested in developing this valuable property in the center of our community, our unique community from what we hear, uh, we can say that's, that's great, here's, here's our vision, this is what we're looking for. And, and as two years seems like it was a, um, an effort, I think the greater effort is going to be holding that vision and, and trying not to compromise uh, you know, short-term benefits for the, um, well, short-term benefits um, in lieu of the, the longer-term uh, uh, vision and, and gains that, that will come from that. So, um, thank you, Scott. Thank you, Dan. And uh, thank you to the uh, community who, who really worked to to put this together. I think it's something that we can all be very proud of. Commissioner Abercrombie. I hate to follow that up because it was so eloquent and I don't think I'm there right now. But um, I just wanted to point out that I, I hope I live to see this. It's something I'm excited about and I think it'll really rehabilitate and connect an area. And there's other larger things at play here too when we think about the fairgrounds and people accessing the fair from that site. It's very walkable from there. There's a lot of things that can be a real positive to the community. And when you looked at that map and saw the three parcels and Scott laid out who owns what, I think an important thing when we feel daunted by this dream is that one third of that is on the table right now. So that's not unattainable. That's something that is moving forward. And that really gives me some peace of mind that it's good to have this kind of vision there because almost immediately we see part of it coming into play. So I appreciate that. Thank you very much. I would also like to chime in and thank the team for all of the good work that they did on this project. I think it's very important that a vision is put in place. And as <coughs> Commissioner Walpert um, remarked if you don't have a vision you'll get you'll get something that you may not want and we have a lot of examples of that and although there are things going on now uh, the f we do have to think about the future and how we want that future to look 
And so I want to thank the team and all their efforts in uh, putting this project together. I think it's a beautiful project. I was almost seeing Arthur Fiedler and the Boston Pops on that little amphitheater down there. <laughs> thank you. There's no other comments. Uh, meeting adjourned. Thank you. Motion. Thank you, commissioners. Appreciate it.